I wasn't due to be speaking today, but given the, the moment that we are in with this coronavirus pandemic, we are interrupting our series from Acts from Acts to talk about this very important issue. What an extraordinary week we have just been through. Things are moving so quickly that it's very hard to keep up with what is developing. On Monday, the Italian Prime Minister declared a lockdown on pretty much the whole of Italy. Then the stock market had its worst day since the financial crisis of 2008. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization declared coronavirus to be a global pandemic. The US president declared a state of national emergency, announced the suspension of all flights from Europe, which I understand as of tomorrow may include Great Britain as well, and declared today as a national day of prayer. That's only happened a few times in the whole of history. So clearly this is a pretty important issue. On Friday, our Prime Minister warned us of the inevitable reality that some will lose loved ones in the coming weeks and months. Large events, sporting fixtures being cancelled, Premier Football Leagues and uh, matches and so on. As you know, we are in a situation none of us have been in before. And things are changing every day. We don't want to be alarmist or to overreact, nor do we want to be irresponsible and underestimate the potential impact of this virus. The reality is that even if some social media and news outlets may have exaggerated, may have been scaremongering, the truth is this is very serious. I cannot say to you everything's going to be fine. It's all going to be okay because it is not going to be fine and it's not going to be okay. It looks like this pandemic will take the lives of many, uh, well, very large numbers of people, particularly the elderly and people who have underlying health conditions. And there will be many people whose livelihoods will be very badly affected. This is going to be distressing. And whether you and I personally are affected by the virus and we get ill or those around us or loved ones do, we will know many people who do. And we will be witnessing distressing news in various forms as this unfolds. We need to respond, but we need to not respond with fear. We need to respond out of love. Some of our behaviors will need to change with immediate effect. You know, we may hold back from shaking hands or hugging, not because we're afraid of catching the virus, but because we are aware that without knowing it, we may pass it on to another or they may pass it to us and as a result someone else who may be vulnerable could in due course become infected and as a result of our physical contact someone could even die just two weeks ago I was like hugging and kissing and shaking hands with you know as many people as I would normally and uh, but my perspective has shifted significantly this is not about you know I was saying well I'm not afraid of catching this I'm gonna give you a big hug but it's not about that. It's about, could I be party to actually causing the spread of this and therefore to save the harm to others? That's my reason for no longer shaking hands and, and hugging so much. This is a sacrifice because social norms are having to be suspended for the sake of others. It's uncomfortable not to be able to greet people in physical ways that we would normally expect to. We will be changing some of the ways that we gather together not out of fear or self-protection, but again, out of love. Because slowing down the spread of this virus is the key issue. 
without significant changes of behavior, the virus may spread very rapidly and significantly risk loss of life as the NHS is overwhelmed. With changes of behavior, the rate of infection will be slower and the health service will be much better able to cope. Many, many people are going to contract this infection. That, we're told, is just completely unavoidable. The key issue for the health service is how fast it spreads, what shape that graph is. Experts are balancing up various factors which influence what they see as the optimal rate of infection. And it's fair to say that what seems obvious to us as members of the public and quite obvious to people forcefully expressing their opinions on social media, we should be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this, and so on, it's fair to say that maybe it's not as informed as we might suppose. In various countries, public gatherings have, um, of, of a certain size have been cancelled. We are aware of a number of churches outside of England which have suspended services until further notice in areas where they have been required to do so and also in areas where there is no yet specific uh, restriction in place. As yet, there is no instruction from our government to cancel meetings. But given the restrictions which Scotland and Southern Ireland have recently announced, it looks like that may happen in the coming days or weeks. Our team is in very close contact with genuine experts who are conversant with the facts which are contributing to these national decisions. And we are currently following the latest guidance as it relates to the timing of suspending our Sunday services. We're being advised that there are factors beyond what seems obvious, and we're reviewing the situation in a well-informed way daily. This, as I say, is a fast-evolving situation, and so any day we may make the decision to suspend Sunday services. When that happens, we don't know whether that will be for a short time or whether for a more extended time. This will be hard, but we will need to do this probably very soon. While we're not meeting here, we will do everything we can to meet virtually. Today, we are live streaming this service so that people who couldn't be here or people who are more comfortable staying away could still be with us. And welcome again to those of you who are joining us from wherever you are remotely. We're looking at how we might continue to do that to enable people to be with us without being with us physically. And as and when we do stop Sunday services here, we anticipate making the service content available online going forward, such that we are able to effectively meet together, even though we're not in the same physical space. This week, we'll be looking at uh, a range of things, uh, including our meetings, large and small. And one of our first priorities in the next couple of days will be to provide some clarity on what this might mean for small groups going forward. We'll need to communicate regular updates, updates as the situation unfolds and announce things at very short notice, quite possibly. So please make sure that we have your email address and other contact details if this is your church. And the best way to do that is complete one of these Connect cards or email the office and uh, let's get you sorted out. If you um, come across others and realize that they haven't received an email from us and therefore we presume you don't have their contact details, please encourage them to email the church office, info.trentvineyard.org. And you'll also be able to get regular updates via our social media channels and also by checking in 
on our website, and there's a specific link there that takes you straight to that page. If you don't have access to the internet, try to connect with someone who does so that you can stay connected. And if you know someone who's not connected, then be, be there for them. You know, just communicate with them when you can. Let's remember that although we won't be able to gather together as we have, the things we are called to don't change. We may not be able to come to church, but we are still the church. John Bodley showed a remarkable picture in his talk last Sunday of a flock of flamingos in the shape of a flamingo. Here it is. And John made the point that this is an amazing picture of the church. It's a real photograph. It's it's not been photoshopped or anything, it's a, but it's an amazing picture of the church that just as the entire flock is shaped like a flamingo, so is each individual within it. In Acts 11, the followers of Jesus were first described as Christians, which essentially means little Christs. Just as the body of Christ, the church, is Jesus-shaped, each of us individually is Jesus-shaped. Together we're the body of Christ. Together, we look like Jesus. But the reality is that each of us carries that image wherever we go. If the flock of flamingos in that photo was scattered, the flamingo influence would go far and wide. That picture is a profound reminder that whether we are together or scattered, we are the church. We've begun to talk in recent weeks about growing in the degree that we look and we act like the church in Acts. And this is an opportunity to be that in a range of ways. I mentioned two weeks ago from Acts 2 and verse 46 that the believers met together in the temple courts and also in their homes. They met together in large settings. They met together in smaller settings. Six chapters further into the book, we see that this pattern of meeting together was suddenly and massively interrupted. So in Acts 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It wasn't coronavirus which changed their pattern of meeting. It was persecution. Verse 3 tells us, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It was a terrible situation, which looked like it would damage the church and thwart its society-transforming impact. The church in Jerusalem went from meeting together in the temple courts and in their homes to being scattered all over the region. And what happened? Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What looked like it would damage the church and its ministry actually had the very opposite effect. In the chapters that follow, we see the rapid expansion of the church and the astonishing impact of the gospel on people far and wide who would not have been reached if the church had not been scattered. It's worth noting that God wasn't taken by surprise by the persecution which broke out. God is not surprised by coronavirus. God is not wrong-footed by anything that happens in society, in the church, or in our personal lives. Whatever we face, he is working through it. And we can be confident rather than anxious in times like these. We are called to be a non-anxious present 
presence in an anxious world. We're called to be a non-anxious present. Let's start that. We're called to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. In the last two days, I've had a number of conversations with my friend Rich Nathan, who leads the Columbus Vineyard in the U.S., and they are live streaming this weekend for the first time, having cancelled their services. And Rich sent me his notes for the message that he's preaching today, which I found very helpful. And so much of the remainder of this talk is a mix of an adapted and shortened version of his material with extra bits, which John Bodley and I have added as we worked pretty hard yesterday on this together. He begins by making a few points about health crises. Firstly, health crises are nothing new for the church. In the early days of the church, it is estimated that over a quarter of the Roman Empire's citizens, including the emperor himself, died in a devastating epidemic in AD 165. In 251, there was a plague with similar impact. And one question historians have considered is, while all the old pagan religions of Rome collapsed under the weight of these epidemics, why was it that Christianity continued to flourish? The answer lies perhaps partly because Christianity offers a much better and hopeful worldview during times of crisis than any of the other alternatives available to people then or now. And partly because Christianity gives us tremendous insight regarding the meaning of suffering and how we handle pain. But also this, because in those times of crisis, the church practiced what almost no one else did, love of one's neighbor. We know that as the early church was growing and there, there was one Roman emperor called Julian who was trying to revive paganism because Christianity was growing so much, paganism was starting to die out. And historians have a copy of a letter from Julian to one of the pagan priests in which he says this, the impious Galileans, that's his way of talking about the Christians, impious, presumably because they weren't worshipping the gods, the pagan gods, the impious Galileans, they're popular because they don't only take care of their own poor, they take care of ours as well. While everybody else ran away from the plague and left sick relatives and sick neighbors to fend for themselves, Christians stayed and they cared for the sick. And not just their own, but they reached out to their pagan neighbors, practically demonstrating God's love for everyone, sometimes at great risk and cost to themselves. Powerful, isn't it? How do we want to be remembered after this is over? As the people who joined others in stockpiling toilet paper and looked out for themselves? Or the people who loved their neighbors and shared what they had? The early church demonstrated the opposite spirit to the culture around them, sacrifice of their own needs for the sake of others, rather like Jesus. The church has faced health crises before, and epidemics are not new in Christian history. In this situation, the baton is passed to us as the current generation 
of Jesus' followers, to respond in a manner worthy of our heritage as the body of Christ, and be a people who offer support and love and hope. As Christians, one area where we are called to go against the grain is in relation to worry. After a week, like we've just experienced, the most natural thing in the world is for us to worry about whether we or our loved ones are going to get sick, or about job security, or our financial situation, how that might be affected. And part of the problem is we don't know what we're facing. We don't know if coronavirus is going to infect vast numbers in our country and city, uh, or if the hospital system is going to be able to cope. And it's not as if we live in a society that isn't already carrying major levels of anxiousness. The number of people seeking professional counseling and therapy is increasing all the time. Mental illness, including anxiety and depression, is the number one cause, apparently, of sickness and absence from work. Several years ago, a University of Cambridge report suggested that more than 8 million people in the UK suffer some sort of anxiety disorder. And so we live in a culture and a moment in history where what Jesus says on the subject is really, really important. So if you have a Bible or a device with you, you might like to turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to begin here at verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. In addressing the topic of worry, Jesus identifies that so often we see the source of our worries as external things, as our circumstances, as our material provision was a key issue for them in that moment. We might believe that the source of our worry is outside us. Right now, if we ask those around us, why are you worried? They're likely to say things like this because, well, my savings for retirement just nosedived. I fear I may be made redundant. I work at major events, all of, almost all of which are being cancelled. Or I've got a loved one with a particular health condition. They can't afford to contract this virus. And these things are on top of all the other worries that we already had going on before coronavirus showed up. We're worried, we might believe, because of all the problems outside of us that it is piling up until we feel crushed. But Jesus says to you and me, you've misunderstood the source of your worry. It's not because all this stuff is happening all around you. It's not because of the news that you're getting all week long. The reason that you worry, he says, is because of something inside you. In this passage, Jesus was addressing an audience most likely made up of farmers and fishermen, uh, people who lived in a context where the weather next month could threaten their livelihood. It could even threaten their survival. And he effectively says, do you know what your problem is? You worry too much. Jesus tells them to stop being afraid. And twice in the text, he tells these poor people, don't worry. So verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. Verse 29, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. And verse 32, do not be afraid. 
little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not worry. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. Jesus says that the problem with worry is not coming from the coronavirus. It's not coming from the stock market. It's not coming from the politicians or the medical professionals or anything outside of you. The worry is coming from inside of you. And he doesn't kind of advise us to try not to worry or don't worry too much. Uh, or say, he doesn't say worry less. He says, don't worry. Like it's a command. It's not advice. And you might be asking, well, how realistic is it to say that? Don't worry. In a time such as this, it feels pretty involuntary. How literal and how helpful are you being, Jesus? Well, I believe that what Jesus is saying is actually really quite hopeful. Because the reality is, you and I can't control much that's happening outside us. I've got no real influence over the stock market or the politicians, and neither do you. We do have influence, though, over ourselves. We are each uniquely placed to know and shape what's going on inside our hearts. And Jesus is giving you and me a really hopeful word and saying, you do not have to react the way everybody else does. There is an element of choice in our approach to worry. I'm not saying that those who are suffering from medical depression, for example, can choose not to be depressed. But I am suggesting that we do have a choice to posture our hearts such that we are less occupied and consumed with worry in the face of external circumstances. So how might we do that? One helpful step is to remember who is telling us not to worry. We need to remember that the person telling us not to worry was Jesus, who lived anything but an easy, carefree life. We're talking about Jesus, who didn't own his own home, who lived on subsistence level for much of his life. We're getting this advice from Jesus, the one who came to earth to suffer death for the sake of the world. He knew when he said, do not worry, that he would soon be personally facing execution on a cross. When I think about who's saying do not worry to us, I also think about the Apostle Paul, who in the book of Philippians wrote this, Philippians 4 verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, these words were not written by a person who was comfortably sitting on a yacht somewhere in the Caribbean. Paul is saying, do not be anxious from a prison cell. The book of Philippians speaks to us about the incredibly stressful circumstances he was facing as he was writing this. There were relational conflicts in the church in Philippi. People were basically, they making it their aim to make Paul's life miserable. On top of being in prison, on top of relational conflicts, he tells us that he's looking at the prospect of being executed in the near future. The bottom line is this. We can, we can hear really hard counsel from someone who understands what we're going through. Somebody who's facing cancer for the first time can hear, you don't need to worry, from someone who has faced the same form of cancer in the past. A widower can hear challenging things from someone who has lost their spouse much easier than from someone who hasn't. 
We can hear things about having a prodigal child or a kid who is addicted much easier from someone else who has had a difficult child than from someone who hasn't. When I hear the words, do not worry or do not be anxious, I remind myself, who is saying these things? Jesus. And I threw in the Apostle Paul for good measure there, who knew what it was like to face really hard things. Having remembered who is speaking to us, our next step is to remember who is in control. As we switch on the news and watch politicians and officials offering advice, offering guidance, making decisions, it's evident that while they're trying their best to offer clarity and guidance and assurances that all that can be done is being done, none of them are really in control, not of this incredibly unusual unfolding situation. Back to Luke 12, Jesus continued, verse 25, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Jesus is putting his finger on the heart of worry, the attempt by you and me to control what is uncontrollable. The illusion that we're in control when we're actually, we're not. For example, if I can distance myself from enough people, I won't catch this virus. If I just stock up on enough toilet paper and hand sanitizer, I can ride this thing out. We worriers always have control issues, but Jesus is saying to us, you can't control much of anything. You can't even add a single hour to your life. Why are you trying so hard? Instead, Jesus says in verse 27, consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Think about how little control a wild flower has over its life. It doesn't choose which field it's growing in. And, and like wildflowers, you didn't choose where you were born or when you were born, what family you grew up in, who your parents were, or anything else about the circumstances of your life, really. But how much of your life really is under your control? The truth is, only God is in control, and he actually is in control of everything. There is mystery, of course, in what God permits that is contrary to his specific will. But nevertheless, he is in control. If you believe God's in control and you believe God is good and will work everything together for your good, then you should never be anxious. God rules over Satan. God rules over viruses. God rules over banks and corporations. He rules over governments. He rules over people. He rules over jobs that you're applying for. God rules over every cell in your body. And God rules over your loved ones. And if God rules over everything and he's working everything together for your good, then what do you actually have to worry about? Will you experience future pain? Yes. Will there be difficulty in your life? Yes. If worse comes to worse, Will God, your father, still be in control? Yes. Does he know about all these things that are coming in this world? Yes. Will he work it for good? Yes, he will. How can we in this time embrace Jesus' command to not worry? Well, by considering who is telling us not to worry. It's Jesus, the only one with the power and the willingness to save us. Who is in control? God the creator and sustainer of the universe. 
And finally, we remember who we are. Verse 27 of Luke 12, consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spend. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Jesus is saying, if God makes wild flowers that really no one's worrying about, they're just growing in the gravel somewhere. If God makes wild flowers beautiful, so beautiful that they outshine even Solomon the king in all his splendor, how much more will you outshine the wild flowers? What Jesus is saying is that God your Father will take care of you. He will. He'll clothe you in his glory. That's a promise from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is saying, I promise you, I will dress you in glory. You don't need to worry about your health. If worse comes to worse and you or I die, Jesus says, I'll raise you from the dead and clothe you with heavenly glory. Jesus says, you don't need to worry about the few pounds that you've got invested in the stock market. I will give you an internal inheritance. Who is speaking to us and telling us not to worry? It's Jesus. Who's in control of all these uncontrollable events? It's God. And who are we to God? We are the beloved children of our Heavenly Father. Therefore, don't worry. The truth is that the coronavirus presents us with uncertainty and adversity. We are not completely in control. But I believe it also presents us with one thing with absolute certainty opportunity. We have the opportunity to be a non-anxious presence among the anxious society in which God has placed us. It's an opportunity to be united. As we disperse, let's go with the picture of the flamingos in our mind. Let's remember that whilst we may not meet like this in this auditorium for a time, we are sent as his scattered servants throughout the city and well beyond it. Each of us carries the image of Jesus. We are his hands and his feet wherever we go. Let us remember that while we may face a degree of separation physically down the road, we remain united in Christ. Let's look out for each other. We're all part of a body, however that uh, unfolds. Do all we can to stay connected. We would encourage you to find creative ways of doing that in your friendship networks and communities because, you know, isolation affects mental health. And that's another health issue that we're looking at now. This is complex. We need to stay connected and looking out for other people. One of the key threats, yeah, is isolation and loneliness. Every effort we make can make a real difference. When one church member whose health made her too vulnerable to be here today heard on social media that we were streaming this service, she messaged one of our pastors saying this, I've literally just seen that on my Instagram feed and cried. It's knowing the fellowship is still there for me even when I can't be there. It's an opportunity also to bring hope to those around us. This looks like it is going to be a dark season. But let's remember that as followers of Jesus, we are preceded by generations of believers who've stepped up and stepped out to serve those around them in times of adversity. We are the church, the same body of Christ that rushed towards the victims of plague and famine in ancient Rome. The same body that hid and protected Jews in their homes in World War II. 
and risked their lives to smuggle Bibles into communist China. The same body that even now is worshipping in secret under regimes of persecution and laying down its life for the sake of others. And now it falls to us to be that body. It's an opportunity too to love others as we love ourselves. In the coming days, we hope to highlight ways in which those that are able can support others around us. We'll be working to identify which areas of our compassion ministries we can sustain and liaising with other agencies in the city to identify potential initiatives where we can help serve the wider city. And we'll be inviting those who can to get involved in helping there. I'd also encourage us each to look for opportunities to be salt and to be light wherever we go. Whether it's, as we're going to do, drop a note through the number of neighbors' doors uh, saying, you know, if you find yourself isolating and you need shopping done or errands run or some support, we're here for you. Here's our phone number. Or donating food or emergency supplies to those who are distributing them or offering listening ears and prayers to friends and colleagues as they face their own challenges. Or whether it's praying for the sick. Let's not stop doing that. Let's do that a whole lot more as there are more sick people around us with the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. And finally, this presents us with an opportunity to pray. We talked a couple, three weeks ago about galvanizing prayer, one of the emphases for the year. Who knew that the Lord would arrange it such that we really need to pray? Because prayer, prayer changes things. You know, We need to pray for our government leaders it's pretty tough making the decisions they have to make. We pray that they would lead us wisely. We pray for the medics who are working on a vaccine. Incredible breakthrough, Lord, we pray. Pray for those who are isolated or lonely. Pray for the sick and those who are at higher risk. Pray for our healthcare workers. And pray for Trent Vineyard that we, along with every other church, might be a truly non-anxious presence, a voice of hope, a community of loving action, and a people of peace in our city.